A is for Andy. On his 18th birthday, he decided to kill Mother. Enough was enough. He didn't want to wear the clothes she laid out for him anymore. The dresses, the blouses, the frilly socks, the panties. For 18 years, he had lived under her roof and abided by her rules. But he was a big boy now. A man. It was time for him to make his mark on the world, and he started by jamming a screwdriver into the back of Mother's neck. Once the deed was done, he found himself at a crossroads. Like a farm animal suddenly liberated from its cage, he was flummoxed by freedom. Where would he go? What would he do? What would he wear? As these questions plagued him, he began to feel his first pangs of regret. Maybe he had been too hasty to kill Mother. Maybe he needed her guidance after all. His dreams of independence seemed to slip through the cracks, like Mother's blood through the weathered floorboards, retreating into the dark unknown. But it was too early along life's great journey to submit to despair. Mother had a saying, first things first. It was a saying he loathed. It always came up when Mother saw fit to wash his private areas raw in the tub. But now he understood its value. He must face these challenges one at a time. And as he stood there naked and soaked in blood, he resolved that the first thing to do was to fashion some proper clothing for himself. Clothes make the man, someone said to him once. Not Mother, of course, and not Father. He had abandoned them long ago. No, the person who had given him this time-worn advice had been one of his teachers at school. School. Now there was a place he truly despised. That six-room schoolhouse on Old Mill Road had been, for him, a place of never-ending ridicule and torment, and this was largely thanks to Mother. Her penchant for dressing him as a girl brought an endless torrent of jeers and bullying, mostly from his male classmates. The teachers did what they were obligated to do, but he could tell that most of them would have been happy to turn another cheek. But as the years went on, his appearance became old hat, and eventually the boys stopped their tormenting. Then Sally Myers came along. Sally Myers was a pigtailed monster in patent leather shoes and baby doll dresses. On her first day of school, she had been a transfer student, he walked right up to her in the playground and held out his hand in friendship. Sally Myers looked aghast, mortified, and slapped his hand away. The other girls laughed and scooped up fistfuls of dirt, throwing them at him as they were prone to doing. But Sally took it a step further. She pushed him over, right into the dirt, and ground a patent leather shoe into the back of his head. "'Don't ever come near me again, Tranny Annie,' she said. "'Tranny Annie, Tranny Annie,' the other girls repeated in a chorus. And from then on, that was how he was known. Not just from Sally, but everyone. He had even heard some of the teachers whisper it as he passed, giggling amongst themselves. One night, at the supper table, he asked Mother what tranny meant. She slapped him for it and sent him to his room without dessert. He understood the Annie part of the taunt. The clothes he wore were fashioned to look like a Raggedy Ann doll, like the many Mother kept around the house. Blue skirt, 
white apron, red and white striped socks. Mother even had him grow his hair out into pigtails, though his thin, mousy locks were never red enough for her liking. He often begged her to dress him like Andy, Anne's brother, or was it lover? But Mother wouldn't have it. In her mind, the question of his gender had been settled, nature be damned. Raggedy Ann it was and forever shall be. Until now. Now he had the freedom to dress however he pleased. If he wished to dress like Raggedy Andy, who would stop him? The very idea made him tingle. Why, that's exactly what he'd do. Dizzy with excitement, his path now laid out for him, he grabbed the nearest Andy doll and sat down at Mother's old sewing machine. He had spent many hours tethered to her side, watching her create his clothing, and had a pretty good understanding of how it all worked. Disrobing the doll, he studied its clothing like a builder going over blueprints. This shouldn't be too difficult, he determined. He went to the closet, gathered bundles of fabric, and focused on the task at hand. But his work proved to be more challenging than expected, and many attempts were scrapped as he labored through the days. So lost he was in his work that he did not notice the sounds of screaming and chaos outside his windows, the madness erupting in the streets of his sleepy rural town. There was neither television nor radio in the house. Mother believed them to be evil, so the catastrophic events that were transforming the world outside had no bearing on his work. When he at last stood before the antique, freestanding mirror in his Raggedy Andy regalia, he hadn't the slightest clue that hell had been unleashed upon the earth. Then, as if rising to judgment, Mother stood up. He saw her behind him in the mirror's reflection, slow, pained, her joints stiff and cracking, shambling like a toddler taking those first tentative steps. She reached out towards him, and when he turned he saw no love in her eyes, no hate, no anger or desire for vengeance. All that was there were tiny pupils poking through milky white orbs. It had been a long time since he had experienced fear. The cruelness of the world had beaten it out of him, but as he stood there facing Mother, a twinge of that old feeling stirred in his gut. Then, like all of his feelings, it was gone. Mother, he said flatly. She looked at him, gray and expressionless, then opened her mouth and groaned. The exiting air was foul and rank, as if she had swallowed a dead animal. Her fingers, gnarled and yellowed by death, grasped at the bib of his crisp, freshly sewn sailor suit. It was almost as if Mother didn't approve of what he was wearing. Well, of course she didn't approve. She may have been dead, but she was still Mother. She pulled him close and prepared to chomp down with her loose, gummy dentures, and he knew that it wasn't with the intent of giving him a kiss. He jammed his forearm under her jaw, and they both tumbled back and went crashing into the mirror. Glass rained around them, cutting his hands and taking off big, rotten chunks of Mother's face. They thrashed on the floor, Mother's mouth snapping until her dentures fell loose, trailing a ropey strand of slime. She wormed a hand to his face and raked down his cheek, digging into his flesh with her ragged nails. With a yelp, he pushed her off of him and slammed her against the wall, and when she hit her bones snapped like twigs bundled inside a wet sack. But despite the fact that she was broken and most assuredly dead, the old biddy kept moving. 
He was going to have to kill her again, he realized. So he picked up the biggest shard of mirror glass he could find and jammed it hard into Mother's left eye. It went in as smooth as a knife into a pumpkin. Her face went slack and her hands stopped grasping, so he jostled the shard around a bit to make sure her brains were pureed. The edges of the shard dug into his hand and drew blood, but he didn't mind the pain. In all his years of anguish, a cut-up palm was the least of his concerns. Satisfied that Mother was once again dead, he stepped back and let her fall face down to the floor. He stood there a while, looking down at Mother, waiting for her to move. She didn't move. He looked back up to what was left of the glass in the mirror. In one of the still-clinging pieces, he caught a glimpse of his face and the long, bloody river Mother had dug into his cheek. It was going to leave a scar, an ugly one. Damn you, Mother, he thought. No, that would simply not do. He could not go out into the world looking like this. Glancing around the room, his mind raced for a solution, something that would hide what had been done to his face. His eyes settled on the smiling face of the Raggedy Andy ragdoll he had used as his model, and at once he had his answer. A few hours later, he gazed once again into the mirror. The face of Raggedy Andy gazed back. A huge Raggedy Andy face fashioned from a yellowed pillowcase that could have passed for a gunny sack. Tufts of red yarn drooped sadly from an old sailor hat he had found in one of the closets. It might have been his father's, but Mother spoke of him so rarely there was no way to be certain. The triangle of a nose he had drawn on with a marker puffed out comically every time he breathed, and he could see the dull gleam of his eyes through the ragged, circular eye holes. And Andy's welcoming, whimsical smile, well, that had turned out all sorts of wrong, a zigzagging nightmare of stitches that bore more resemblance to a jack-o'-lantern grin than a rag doll's mouth. But none of these details mattered. There could be no mistaking his identity now, no confusion in regards to his gender. He was Andy, and Andy was ready to make his debut. He was almost out the door when it occurred to him that he might want to bring a weapon, just in case he ran into any of the bullies from his old school, Sally Myers in particular. Back in the kitchen was a butcher knife Mother had used to cut herself a piece of cake a few days ago. Andy had not been allowed any cake. Pretty girls were obligated to stay slim so they could fit into frilly dresses. Well, there would be no more frilly dresses, and he would eat all of the cake that he wanted, so he grabbed the knife, licked off the frosting, and stuck it into the waistband of his double-buttoned pants. Back in the living room, the sight of Mother's formerly reanimated corpse reminded him that it may be wise to carry a longer-range weapon, just to be safe. Over by the fireplace stood an antique fire poker, the kind with a curved spike coming off the arrow-shaped head. That thing would do some damage. He knew this firsthand as Mother had beaten him with it on several occasions. With that in mind, he took the poker by the handle and swung it hard into Mother's skull, splitting it cleanly in two and coating her precious oriental rug in blackened, pulpy brain matter. Yes, this would do just fine. Confident he was now well prepared, he went to the front door and stepped boldly outside.
The world that greeted Andy was a world of silence. No cars drove, no voices called, no children ran by screaming and laughing. It was as quiet as a graveyard on the coldest night in December. While Andy had been preoccupied, nose down in his work, the world had died. It was an unsettling feeling to be presented with such a world, and if Andy hadn't shoved all of his feelings into a deep, dark hole, he might have turned around and gone back inside. But Andy was done with fear. It would no longer dictate his actions. So, fire poker in hand, he walked fearlessly into the empty streets and headed towards town. From now on, it would be he who dealt fear. As he neared town, a fog rolled in, thick and portentous. It was not uncommon for a fog to roll through town. They were not far from a lake, after all. But this fog did not feel like the natural condensation that came off of water. This fog had an acrid, chemical smell, and taking it into your lungs was like gulping down hot cotton. But Andy did not let it bother him. He took in shallow breaths, a slow, steady rhythm, and by the time he reached the town center, his breathing had almost lulled him into a trance. The town, like everywhere else, was lifeless. The storefronts were lit and doors left hanging open, but the whole area seemed to have been deserted in a rush. The fog made it hard to see the small town commons, but even through the pea soup, Andy could tell it was devoid of people. There were cars scattered about, some abandoned in the middle of the street with doors ajar and windows smashed. It all told the tale of a small-scale apocalypse, a provincial Armageddon, and as he stood there in the square, he wondered if the state of the town and his mother's return from the dead had any connection to one another. In the corner of his mask's eye-hole, Andy caught something moving in the smoky gloom, lurching from behind a van. At last, he thought, and turned to face the figure. As it stumbled towards him, he recognized it as a local shopkeeper, a middle-aged man that the cruel local kids had nicknamed Mumblin' Joe due to his habit of muttering during a transaction. Andy had always felt a kinship to Joe as he himself was similarly mocked, but Joe just glanced at him side-eyed on the one occasion that Andy had snuck in to buy candy. It seemed that one town laughingstock could still be contemptuous of another, especially when it came into his shop wearing an Alice in Wonderland dress topped off with a pretty pink bow. Well, Mumblin' Joe wouldn't be looking at him side-eyed anymore. In fact, he wouldn't be looking at anyone side-eyed, period. As the man lurched closer, it became clear that both his eyes were gone, torn right out of their sockets, leaving empty, blood-encrusted skull holes. He groaned in that dry, dead leafy way that Mother had groaned, and Andy knew that Joe must be in the same state of undeath. Without giving it a second thought, he hauled back and hit Joe hard in the face with the fire poker. The hook of the poker dug into Joe's jawbone, and when Andy yanked it loose, the entire lower mandible tore free from Joe's skull. This didn't stop the shopkeeper in the slightest, and he kept lunging forward, trying to gum onto Andy with only an upper jaw. Andy almost felt bad for Joe. The poor guy had spent his entire life in quiet humiliation, and here he was embarrassed even in death. But the feeling passed as Andy jammed the fire poker deep into one of Joe's eyeless sockets, sending the shambling revenant down to the pavement. Joe let out a gurgled rasp as he let go of his second life, 
and Andy thought that it almost sounded like a mumble. Mother didn't let Andy watch horror movies, so he didn't know to think of the shambling townsfolk as zombies or ghouls, but he enjoyed killing them all the same. When he passed by Rexall Drugs, a woman in jogging pants with a torn-out throat emerged, and Andy cracked her head open just to see what it looked like inside, finding it a moldy blackish green. Figuring it as a sign of infection, Andy resolved not to get too close in case the disease or whatever it was should infect him as well. It made him awfully glad he had chosen the fire poker to use as his primary weapon, and he took pride in himself for being so forward-thinking. The rest of the day was spent casually re-killing the residents of his sleepy little town. They weren't hard to find. He could just pass by a restaurant or gas station and a lurker or two would emerge, groaning and grasping for his flesh. They weren't very fast, which made for easy killing, and as the town was sparsely populated to begin with, he never faced more than three or four at a time. Most of the shamblers he encountered were adults, but at one point he was thrilled to come across a pair of teenage boys, jocks by the look of their soiled letterman jackets. So excited he was that he got a little sloppy, and one of them, the mean-looking one with the big nose and crew cut, nearly took a bite out of his leg and caused him to drop the poker. Thankfully, Andy was quick with the kitchen knife and sunk it deep into the top of the jock's wire brush scalp. It gave him enough time to retrieve his fire poker and decapitate the other one with a hard blow to the neck. The whole thing left him winded but satisfied, and as the sun came down he headed for the safety of home. There, back at the house, a sadness crept in. Mother's corpse had really started to reek, so he brought her up to the attic and set her down in an old rocking chair. He sat with her a while in the hot and dusty room, wishing he could share with her the excitement of the day's events. He wanted to tell her that he had found his true calling, the thing in this life he felt he was meant to do. But Mother just sat there, flies buzzing around her split-open skull, eyes gray and staring at him with their usual disapproval. No matter what he did, no matter how many he killed, he could not seem to make her proud of him. It made him so angry that he pulled a moldy tablecloth off of a shelf and threw it over her, then left her there to rot on her own. The following morning he started off with renewed purpose, but by noon he had started to feel the sadness creeping back in. Slaughtering shamblers, as fun as it was, had already begun to feel rote. He tried to spice things up by mutilating them after the kill, or mangling them beforehand and playing with them a bit. A few of them he even allowed to get close, trying to drive a thrill into it by putting himself deeper in danger. But in the end, it was the same thing again and again, a whack to the head and down they went. It was all so repetitive and automatic that he began to feel like a machine, a robot programmed to carry out this strange, singular purpose. And the dead didn't provide much variety on their end, just groaning and grasping and snapping their jaws. There was some crucial piece missing from the sad little routine, and by late afternoon Andy knew what it was. Life. Life was what was missing. He needed to hear screams, feel fear, 
see the panic in their eyes. Even animals, which he would never harm, reacted with fear, but these shamblers just stood there and took it, no reaction of any kind. In some ways Andy felt that he was doing them a favor, and he was not in the business of granting favors. No, he needed to fight, to feel the blood rush in his veins, and the only way to achieve that was to kill a live person, as he had done with Mother the first time. Now if only there was a live person left in this whole stinking town. Then he turned a corner by the old Presbyterian church and there she was, Sally Myers. Time had transformed her from a pinched girl in pigtails to a stunning teen in wavy curls, but Andy would have recognized her anywhere, even without the patent leather shoes. At first he feared that she was just another revenant, but when he saw her chest heaving with breath and her eyes widening with fear, he knew, in the shadow of this church, that his prayers had been heard. They stood there a while by the church driveway, staring each other down. Andy was so happy to see her that he had forgotten that he was wearing a mask. It wasn't until she raised it did he realize she was holding a gun, a snub-nosed revolver, Her hand was trembling so badly she could barely aim it straight. Stay back from me, you hear? He cocked his head at her voice, a dog hearing an inaudible tone. Can you understand me? Are you one of them? A zombie? He wasn't sure what she meant, but he shook his head anyway. Say something then. You're freaking me out, and when I get freaked out I shoot. Andy said nothing just stood there, still as a statue. Seriously, that mask is fucking freaky. Take it off! Mask? What mask? This was his face now. I mean it. Stop fucking around. He started towards her, his gait perfectly measured. A flash, then a pop. The bullet struck him in the shoulder with incredible force, causing him to stumble back a step. Pain snaked through him like a web, setting each nerve ending on fire. He stood there, waiting for the shock to fade and for darkness to descend. But darkness did not come, and the pain, while exquisite, did not destroy him. If anything, it was pleasurable in a twisted sort of way. It was what he had been craving, pure feeling. He wanted more, wanted to feel that way all the time, now and forever. He resumed walking towards her. Jesus Christ, Sally cried. She fired again. The bullet struck his other shoulder, knocking him back another step. But he kept advancing. The pain flooded his body yet again, and yet again he thrived on it. Sally pulled the trigger once more, but there was only a click. The chamber was empty. She fumbled in her pocket for more bullets as he drew ever closer, but the slug slipped out of her shaking fingers. He was almost upon her now. She gave up on reloading and ran off away from the church, in the direction of Old Mill Road. Towards the old schoolhouse. He followed after her in evenly paced strides, and it began to feel as though they were locked in some strange, preordained dance. She ran up the schoolhouse steps, finding the double doors unlocked, and ran inside. He was delighted. What better place to play out this long-needed reckoning? 
Taking the steps slow and purposeful, he was pleased to find that in her panic she had neglected to lock the doors behind her. It was almost as if she wanted this to happen. Don't worry, sweet Sally, he said in his mind. I want this too. It felt like a homecoming. The interior of the school was six simple classrooms dissected down the middle by a hallway lined with metal lockers. The power was out, of course, but the milky daylight streaming through the windows afforded plenty of visibility. As Andy glided down the hallway, calm as a stalking hunter, his ears quested for the sounds of his prey. But aside from the wind rustling the paper piles of abandoned lessons, what came back was only silence. He came to the doorway of his first-grade classroom and stood a moment, memories of torment flooding back. The paper doll streamers were new, and some vandal had scrawled, Mrs. Green sucks cock on the chalkboard, but otherwise it was much as he remembered, and it filled him with unquenchable rage. Something moved behind the teacher's overturned desk. It sounded like a piece of chalk falling from a chalkboard tray. Beneath his mask, Andy smiled. Sally was in here, cowering behind the desk. Her terror would only sweeten the kill. Stepping inside the room, he immediately sensed that something was wrong. There was a whistling of air from behind, and a hard object struck him across the head, splintering against his skull. So forceful was the blow that he stumbled to his knees, and for the first time since he had donned the mask, he felt vulnerable. Standing over him, a broken yardstick in her hand, was his teeny bopper nemesis. The vicious smile of her childhood had returned with a vengeance. "'How you like me now, freak?' she hissed. "'Thwack!' She struck him again right across his covered face. Beneath the mask he felt blood trickle from his mouth. He licked it, tasting copper and salt. It tasted good. She raised her arm to strike again, but he grabbed her by the wrist, stopping her swing. He squeezed, and was surprised how easy the bones inside her snapped, like tiny twigs. Mother had always told him that he was weak, but it wasn't true. He was strong. Standing, he drove Sally screaming to her knees, and the half-broken yardstick clattered to the floor. Now that he had her, Andy knew he wouldn't be satisfied simply braining her with the fire poker, so he dropped it and went for the knife in his waistband. This kill had to be special, intimate, a moment shared by himself and Sally alone. He raised the knife, seeing his own reflection in the gleam of metal, and Sally's mouth dropped open as she readied for death. Andy hadn't remembered the supply closet until the door slammed open and the groaning thing inside stumbled out. She was a little girl in a bright blue dress and pigtails, not unlike the girl Sally had been all those years ago. Her scabby, knee-socked legs clambered towards them, impressing Andy by the rate at which they moved, and he wondered if her youth was a factor. Reflexively, he let go of Sally's wrist and stepped out of the child thing's path. Its knobby knees buckled inwards and it fell, landing by Sally and chomping down on her calf with yellowed baby teeth. Sally screamed in agony. Rage surged through Andy in a hot wave. This little monster was robbing him of his glory, tainting the pleasure of this moment. Sally howled again as the girl tore a chunk of meat from her leg, blood gushing from the wound in red rivers. 
Furious, Andy shoved Sally aside and went for the girl with his blade, skewering her right through the neck. The little fiend gasped and snapped at him with her teeth, but Andy was not to be intimidated. Grabbing her hard by her hair, he sawed with the blade, cutting her head clean from her body. He tossed the head at the wall where it bounced and landed in a still upright trash can, a slam dunk. It was the first time in his life that Andy had shown any sort of athletic skill. Wisely, Sally had used the distraction to escape. But with her wounded leg, she wouldn't get far, and the blood she was trailing would lead Andy right to her. This made him glad. The chase was back on, and he was grateful that it hadn't been ended too soon. The blood trail led out to the back of the schoolhouse to the small, dingy playground where Andy and Sally had played out their childhood drama. He found her there, sitting in one of the swings of the rusted swing set, her eyes glazed and yellowing. Her feet dangled in the dirt, but there was no more fight in them, no more spirit to run. This was clearly where it was all going to end, so Andy resolved to save her every moment. "'You're too late,' she said with a bitter smile." I'm already dead. As he approached, he noticed black, spidery tendrils branching from the bite on her leg. A poison transmitted from the undead girl, infecting her arterial system. She was right. It wouldn't be long now before the life would be gone, leaving only a gnashing, shambling automaton. I know who you are, she croaked. I figured it out when I recognized the outfit. You're that kid I used to bully back in grade school. Tranny Annie. Andy nodded slowly, pleased to finally be recognized. So that's what this is about, right? Revenge? Andy nodded again. Would it matter if I told you that I was sorry? That I was a shitty little kid with a shitty upbringing who was mad at the world and took it out on you? He thought about it for a moment and decided it wouldn't matter. Not this late in the game. He shook his head, no. Fine then, Sally said. Just do it. Andy felt the rush of rage return. How dare she try to deny his vengeance by claiming death on her terms? He thought about letting her live just to spite her, but his soul cried with need, demanded to feel the hot gush of real, living blood. So before she could say anything else that might ruin this moment, he jammed his knife into her abdomen. As the blade sank in, she gazed up at him, but instead of horror or despair, the look she wore was one of blessed relief. He didn't like that look, not one bit, so he withdrew the knife and stabbed again. And again. No matter how many times he stabbed, all he got in return was that damn look of relief, almost of pleasure. Losing control, he hacked until her body was a pulpy mash of flesh clinging to the seat, but he couldn't stab the look from her face. So consumed he was in madness that he didn't stop to savor the exact moment of her death. In a final fit of frustration, he sunk the knife deep into her skull and left it there, jutting from her head like a unicorn's horn. Andy sat there with Sally Myers until the day turned into night and back to day again. A part of him hoped that she would return, reanimate as a shambler so he could kill her again, but the knife he had planted in her skull robbed him of that. He cursed himself for losing control. 
Eventually, more shamblers came upon the scene, and he tried to take pleasure in braining them with his fire poker, but it just wasn't the same. He had developed a taste for real killing, not this sad facsimile he was forced to settle for. It was a hunger that grew inside him as strong as his hunger for food, and as the bodies continued to fall, Andy knew he would have to leave town and seek nourishment elsewhere. So he returned home, packed what little he could carry, and said his final goodbye to Mother. Then Andy set off to see the world. The road out of town led to a highway, and upon reaching it, Andy found an endless graveyard of abandoned vehicles. There were shamblers about, in and out of the cars, and Andy slew them with the grim duty of a municipal worker picking up trash at the side of the road. On and on the miles stretched, just an endless slog of slaughter, and as the sun began to set, Andy considered just giving up. What was the point of all this if he couldn't feel the joy of a real live kill? All he had to do was drop the fire poker and let the revenants take him, rip him apart like the ragdoll he was, tear the red stuffing from his gut. All he had to do was lie down in the road, and soon this would all be over. Then, over the crest of a hill, there came a glimmer of hope. Drawing closer, his faith was rewarded. Up ahead was a massive shopping center, the kind that housed dozens of stores. A mega mall. And there, up on the roof, were moving figures, human shapes. They could have been shamblers. At this distance it was difficult to tell. But the closer he got, the more he was confident they were living, breathing, feeling human beings. Survivors. A whole group of them. They must have taken them all when the outbreak began and barricaded themselves off from the deluge of the dead. Who knew how many more were inside? There could be hundreds. Minutes later, he stood at the edge of a vast parking lot, taking in the sea of once-living shoppers that stood between him and the mall. On the roof, the survivors had guns, and some of them were using the undead as target practice, picking them off here and there as if playing a carnival game. Andy realized he could easily be mistaken for one of them, so he had to do something to show that he was alive, that he was a real human being. So he wandered into the sea of shamblers and started to chop like a butcher in a slaughterhouse. As experienced as he was, the number he now faced was a challenge unto itself. Mindless though they were, the undead swarmed around him en masse, threatening to overwhelm him as he hacked his way through. But never once did he waver or show weakness. Blow upon blow his poker landed, splattering their rancid matter all over himself until he was soaked to the bone with gore. The jaunty suit he so proudly wore was barely recognizable under the draping intestines and caked-on crust of brain matter, but underneath the muck and entrails, underneath the clinging chunks of rotten flesh, Andy felt reborn. One of the sharpshooters on the roof identified him as human and assisted by picking off shamblers with his rifle. Others joined in, and soon Andy was the last man standing among a mountain of corpses. He looked up to see smiling, friendly faces waving down at him from the roof. Their eyes were rightly filled with awe at the blood-soaked being who stood before them, this fearless warrior of the apocalyptic wastes. They didn't seem unsettled by his appearance or have any inkling whatsoever of the monster he really was. They didn't have the slightest clue what they were in for. Moments later, the doors were opened, and he was welcomed into the sanctuary of the mall. 
All content and performance copyright 2015 Sebastian Bendix. Music by Sebastian Bendix and Johnny Lane. We're six feet under.